Hello and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Devinney. I'm the lead pastor here at Asbury. And we hope this podcast will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and I hope it will be entertaining as well. We pastors always strive to be uh, good entertainers, right? Uh, Let's get started. We're going to talk about Leviticus today because... Uh, if you are going along with our Bible reading plan, uh, I'm recording this on Wednesday, the 26th of July. Uh, you read, if you are following along on our plan, you read the last chapter of Exodus today. And tomorrow you'll start Leviticus, everybody's favorite book. This is, um, you know, last year when I had the church reading through the entire Bible in a year. We're not doing that this year, by the way. We're taking it slower. But last year, when I asked you to all read through the entire Bible in the year, one of the reasons why I picked those one-year Bibles is because they break up the readings, right? So you have a bit of Old Testament, a bit of New Testament, a Psalm, and a Proverb every day. Um, And the reason for that is that if you've ever tried to read the entire Bible straight through, just beginning to end, uh, in a year, there's a good chance that you got to Leviticus and stopped. Right, it's not. It's a hard book to. I mean, the second half of Exodus, right, is not an interesting book. Let's be honest. It's it's all these. You, know, you have a brief bit about laws that people are supposed to follow, but then you have all these really just instructions for building the tabernacle and the description of it, which is interesting in and of itself, but only if you know what to look for, um, because there's lots of imagery in there that that really suggests the design of the tabernacle is meant to evoke images of the Garden of Eden, which connects to the temple imagery in the opening chapters of Genesis and sort of reinforces this idea that the creation story is really a story of God building a temple, and it also points forward to the day when Jesus will come, the temple will be no more, and the whole earth will be the temple of God, which it is now. Um, But even then, it makes for pretty dry reading. And then you get to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you think, why on earth am I reading this? And to be totally honest with you, I don't think that these are books that we need to, you know, read all the time. You know, in your in your typical life, you're probably better served reading the Gospels, reading the New Testament, reading Genesis, reading maybe the history books of the Old Testament, right? First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Joshua, even the prophetic books. Um, which are much more, I, to me, they're still kind of dry, but they're much more interesting than these, right? So what's the point in reading Leviticus and Deuteronomy? Um, especially since we don't live according to these laws. Well, let's reiterate a couple of things that I've, I've pointed out over the course of this year several times. Um, at no point does the New Testament redefine the morality established by the Old Testament. So every everything that the Old Testament reveals about the, the morals God wants his people to live by, that is affirmed in the New Testament. In most places, it's, it's not even just affirmed. It's actually intensified, right? Um, Jesus does this famously when he says, you know, if you even... You know, I, I tell you, if you even look at a woman with lust in, in your heart, you have committed adultery with her. Um, if, you, if you have hatred for your brother in your heart, 
you have committed murder, right? So he actually takes the morality of the Old Testament and intensifies it. What he also does, however, is he, he changes the game a little bit, right? Because uh, you think of the story of the, the woman in John chapter 8 who's brought to Jesus for stoning. And she's, uh, you know, she's an adulteress, right? She's, she's been caught in the act of adultery, which I always find hilarious because um, how exactly did those religious leaders catch her in the act of adultery? That's a fun question to ponder. Um, so they've caught her in the act of adultery. Now they don't, the man who she was adultering with, I don't know if that's a verb, but I'm going to use it. The man she was adultering with, he's nowhere to be found, which is odd. Because the laws of the Old Testament are pretty clear that actually, in a case of adultery, um, both people are to be punished. They've only brought the woman. Which suggests to me, by the way, that the man in question is one of those religious leaders, and that this was all a setup. But in any case, they bring this woman to Jesus. And I preached a sermon on this back in, I want to say March or maybe even February, uh, but it was a while back in the spring, and, and uh, if I may say so, it was a pretty good one. Uh, if you want to go uh, back on our church's website and try and find it, um, it sometime in March or, or I think early March, maybe maybe late February, but I'm pretty sure it was early March. Um, and I, I'll, because I went into detail about sort of the what the religious leaders were actually trying to accomplish there, but the real the the gist of it is is that what Jesus does in that story with this woman is he upholds the Old Testament morality, right? They ask her what to do. They ask, they ask Jesus what should be done. And he gives her the death penalty, doesn't he? That's not how we often read the story, but that is factually, objectively what happens. He gives her the death penalty. He says, you're right. She's guilty of adultery. The law says she must be stoned. In fact, I suspect that when, in that story when he, he gets down and writes in the dirt, what he's writing is the sentence is death or something along those lines. And the reason is um, that was a Sabbath day and the only form of writing which is allowed on the Sabbath day is to write in the dust with your finger. Uh, so I suspect that Jesus getting and writing in his finger was him writing out the formal pronouncement of her punishment in the dirt. Her punishment is death. He gives her that death penalty. He upholds the law. He just says after that, now which one of you is going to throw the first stone? If he's the judge, he gets to determine the method of ex execution, right? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. What Jesus does in that story is he affirms the morality of the law. He affirms the goodness of the moral teachings of the Old Testament, but he removes the penalty. He affirms that adultery is a sin, but he refuses to kill the woman. And, and that is our guidance for reading the Old Testament laws. The morality of the Old Testament is still in effect, but the penalty has been removed, and it's actually been removed because Jesus took it upon himself. Now, there are laws in Leviticus, obviously, that are not moral laws, right? There are laws about 
purification and things like that. The things you've got to do before you can go into the temple. Um, there are dietary laws which are just flat out no longer in effect. What do we do with those? Well, first we understand that some of these laws exist for the sole purpose of marking out God's people as different. Now, the way that you and I are marked out as different is, is simply by our allegiance to and obedience to Jesus. That's what marks us out as different. We don't need the laws, like dietary laws and laws about what kind of clothes we can wear just to set us apart. So we can set those aside. But there are, there are purification laws, and we don't have to follow these laws, but we, I think we need to understand them and pay attention to them. Because these laws, um, people get these twisted. They are not about purifying yourself. They've got nothing to do with that. It's not about you. And, and this brings us to the fundamental point of the laws, right? The laws are not about us. They're not about the people. They're about God. The purification laws are not about us. They're not about purifying the human. They are about purifying the sanctuary. All the purification laws are about purifying the sanctuary. Because the sanctuary needs to be purified if God's presence is going to be there. That's the important thing. All of these laws, every single one of them, is about allowing God to be present with his people. And that is what Jesus is doing as well in the New Testament. He is... He is doing things to enable God's presence to be with his people. He's just redefining who those people are and how God's presence is going to be there. So for us now, it's pretty clear that our bodies have taken the place of the tabernacle and the temple. God is present with us in our bodies. This by the way, is one of the reasons why we are so insistent that what we do with our bodies matters, right? Not just, um, and, and people have zeroed in a lot on sex and sexuality when it comes to this, and, and for good reason, right? It, it, it does matter for exactly that reason, um, that our, our bodies are literally the temple of God. Our bodies are the place where God's presence on earth dwells. Uh, and so what we do with them matters, and, and that includes sex and sexuality, where, where there are very strong, very powerful temptations to do things with our bodies that they are not meant for and that would exclude God's presence from them. That's a big deal. Hugely, hugely important. It, however, is not the only thing. We ought to consider what this says about the way we live every aspect of our lives, right? How do we, how do we treat our bodies? How do we, how do we live? How do we, are we, what do we eat, right? What are we putting into our bodies? Are we using our bodies in ways which glorify God? Are we, are we treating them as holy, sacred things? Because they are. We are not separate from our body, by the way. This whole idea that you know the body is just this vessel that we're going to discard when we die. Nonsense. Go read the New Testament and tell me where you find them. It's not in there. What is in there is the assurance that our bodies, the body we live in right now, 
is going to be raised back to life on the last day. It will be made new. We will be bodily creatures for eternity. So what we do with our bodies matters. Um, because our body is the sanctuary. We don't have a list of purification rituals we're supposed to follow. Thank God. Jesus has made things simpler. But what these laws can teach us is the deep, deep reverence that the people had for the place where God's presence was supposed to be. And we ought to adopt that. Now, I'm speaking to myself here as much as to anyone else. Because, you know, I certainly don't do this. But if our body is, if our physical bodies are the place where God's presence dwells on earth, we ought to have a lot of reverence for that. Now that, that then extends for reverence to other people's bodies as well, right? Which ties back in again, you want to talk about the idea of lust. Well, why is lust a problem? Well, because if you are lusting after someone, you are considering them only as an object for your gratification instead of as a person made in the image of God designed to house the presence of God. That's why lust is wrong. right? That, and that then again feeds into why um, what we do as far as sex and sexuality is so massively important. But it, it also extends to respect for the sanctity of life. Now, I say those words and people immediately assume I'm talking about abortion and, and that's part of it. But it's not the whole thing. Right? If we truly believe in the sanctity of life, if we truly believe that each human body has the potential to house the presence of God, well, then we've probably got to rethink the death penalty, for one. We've got to rethink how we treat prisoners. We've got to rethink how we treat even uh, international prisoners who have been arrested for terrorism. We've got to rethink how we treat the poor. We've got to rethink what, how we treat immigrants because, of course, they are humans. We've got to rethink what foreign policy and, and what it has to do with war and conflict and violence. All of these things have to be rethought in the light of the fact that God's presence, that God desires to dwell with his people and in his people. And you will see all of this reflected in one way or another in Leviticus, right? There are laws in Leviticus about how immigrants can be treated. Because if you break those laws, if you treat those immigrants poorly, you are defiling the sanctuary in some way. There are laws in Leviticus about um, how you can physically treat other people. Laws about caring for the poor, about feeding the hungry, about make laws that were all designed to ensure that the poorest people of Israel would always be looked after and cared for and fed. For instance, there are laws about land, right? If a family sells their land to another buyer, that buyer has to eventually let them have it back. There is no, there is no allowance in the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy for permanent transfers of property. Now, Israel violated that law, and it's one of the things that, if you read through Isaiah and Jeremiah, seems to enrage God the most about their sin. But the law does not allow for the permanent transfer of property. Why? Because that ensures that no one in Israel, if they're following this law, 
No one in Israel will be without a place to live, without a place to grow food, without a place to generate some sort of income. Every little law in here is related in some sense to creating the kind of society that God wants us to live, um, while also making allowances for human frailty and human sin. Right, so, um, like the vengeance laws, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You know, people read those and they assume that this is meant to facilitate revenge, but that's not it. It's meant to limit revenge, right? Because if someone gouges out your eye, odds are that you don't want to stop at just gouging out their eye. You want to do something worse, right? God puts a limit on vengeance. Um, he's working with human frailty here. And we could go on and on about all the different examples in Leviticus and Deuteronomy about that, but Remember, these laws are designed to create the kind of place where God's presence can dwell. So when we read these books, we don't, we don't have to read them and think, okay, how do I actually embody this? We do have to read them, though, and think, okay, what would be the equivalent for me? What would be the equivalent for, for our culture today? There's this law in Leviticus about how the immigrants are to be treated. What does that say about how we are to treat immigrants? If there's this law here about what we're supposed to do in terms of caring for the poor, how does that mean? What does that mean for us and how we should care for the poor? And there, that works on two levels because, of course, we as the church, we do things directly to help the poor, don't we? I mean, we have our own food pantry here at Asbury. Um, a number of our church members are involved in a project called Church Without Walls here in town. Um, there, many of you also just, I think, give directly to various charities around town. So we, we do things as the church to help the poor. We probably, many of us, do things as individuals to help the poor. But what are you doing? This, this does affect how you should vote, doesn't it? And I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I will never do that. Because frankly, I'm, I'm a pastor. <laughs> I'm not an expert in economics or an expert in for, or, or any of the th those things, and so everyone votes their conscience. But, but this is the kind of thing you need to be taking into account. One of the things you should be voting for. You should never be a single issue voter. One of the things you should be taking into account as you vote is, which of these politicians has policies that will that will best serve the most needy among us. Which of these politicians has policies that will best help us welcome the immigrant to our country? Now, there will be differing opinions on that. Believe me, I know. Uh, and I will not tell you here which one is right and which one is wrong. Um, I think the most important thing right now is that this is something you actually think deeply about. right? Don't just react. Don't just um, adopt the stance of your preferred political party, but sit and think deeply about it. I can tell you, as a Christian and as someone who tries to, who really tries to do this and tries to put my uh, my Christian values above all else, when it comes time to to voting and things like that, I never find myself in full agreement with either political party. At times, I lean one way or the other, depending on what they're doing, and depending on what I think the country needs. But I've never found myself just agreeing wholeheartedly with one side or the other. And I think that is the natural state 
that we are supposed to find ourselves in politically. You might end up voting for one party all the time because you think that they tend to embody your values better. But if you, if you can't find anything they're doing, anything in their party line that, that you object to, uh, then you've got a problem. And this podcast on Leviticus has become more political than you might have expected, but, but Leviticus is a political book. It is the laws that are supposed to govern the nation of Israel. They, they never, there, there is no evidence that at any point in their history they actually followed all of these laws, even at their best. They were only following uh, a majority of them and not all of them. And again, these are not laws for us, but they provide us guidance. They give us insight into the morals that God wants us to use to guide our life. And those morals are never redefined, right? The sexual morals are never redefined. The, um, the, the, the laws regarding tr- the, the morality of, of treating immigrants and, and whatnot, that's never redefined. The morality of how we're supposed to care for the poor, that's never redefined. The basic morality of the Old Testament laid out in Leviticus and Deuteronomy is upheld and affirmed and actually intensified all throughout the New Testament, even as the legalistic aspects of it and the, and the penalties for breaking laws are removed, the basic morality underlying the laws is affirmed, intensified, and upheld. So we, we do have to read these books. We have to know what they say because they inform everything else. They're, they're, they are dry reading. They're, I know that, I get that. They're dry, they're not, they're not fun to read, but we have to read them. Because they are the ones that they are the books that tell us how to live, that teach us how to live the way God wants us to live. We don't have to follow the laws, but we have to understand the morality that undergirds those laws and figure out how to apply it in our daily lives. That's all for this week, folks. We'll be back next week with another podcast. <laughs>